St. Martin's School Radio. Today we are going to look at the Spanish book Don Quixote and its author Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra. Miguel de Cervantes was the author of Don Quixote, born in 1547 and dying in 1615 at the age of 68. He had a big family with six brothers and he was the eldest. He served proudly in the army which he joined in 1570. He fought bravely in battles, one of which left him without much control of his left hand. He was unfortunately captured in Iran, modern Algeria. His ransom was 500 escudos de ores, which his family could not pay. He was held prisoner for five years. He had struggled with poverty all his life and died 12 years later due to poverty and diabetes. His final resting place is still a mystery. In 1605, he released the famous novel Don Quixote, and the story takes place in a village in La Mancha. The book focuses on a man called Alonso Quijano, who was better known as Don Quixote. He enjoyed reading books, his favourites being tales of chivalrous knights in old Spain. He spent hours reading them. He then started to confuse reality with fantasy and strive to imitate the heroes. He said that the world needs brave men like myself who will fight for justice against evil. From now on, I'll be known as Don Quixote de la Mancha, and I'll go down in history. He made the necessary arrangements and found an old spear and a dented shield and a mare called Rosimonta. He also recruited a kind and chubby peasant called Sancho, who passed him by. Remembering all knights need a squire, he asked Sancho if he'd be willing to. Sancho, being naive, he agreed. For the many rewards that you promised me, I will follow you, sir. That's the word of Sancho Panza. They set off seeking adventure as the neighbours laughed at them, but they didn't let it stop them. He takes on windmill giants, sheep, sends a letter to his love, encounters another knight, and much more. It wasn't what he had expected, as he had been relentlessly teased and mocked. They decided to return home, where, where there would be more adventures for them to pursue. The story of Don Quixote is so important because it is cited as the first modern novel and it was also one that explores the characters and their dreams. He also plays on the idea that reality and fantasy can be confused. He also explores the idea of madness and sanity. The book is now famous and is recognised as a brilliant modern novel and is the first of its kind. Don Quixote inspired many authors including F. Scott Fitzgerald and Mark Twain. The characters also became archetypes. Welcome back to St. Martin's School Radio. This is Kate Bailey and this is our second episode of the Spanish Podcast. Today we're joined with a very special guest, Dr. Altenberg, but before we, introduce, before we interview him, let me introduce you to him. He, is, he has conducted studies in a wide variety of fields, including Latin American and Spanish literature, comics, films, the Falkland War, the Mexican Revolution, etc., he has also co-edited a cross-media volume on Don Quixote and has studied diverse ad- adaptations of the novel. This is the reason why we have invited him to our show. He has also had many qualifications. In 1989-1995, undergraduate studies at Bonn University, Germany, University de Chile, 
University de Cumbria, Portugal, and University of Hamburg, Germany. In 1991, he got a university diploma teaching German as a second language, University Bonn, Germany. 1999, Doctor in Hispanic Literature, University Hamburg, Germany. And 2003, Postgraduate Diploma, Teaching in Higher Education, University Hamburg, Germany. I hope I didn't leave anything out, so welcome to our show, Dr. Altenberg. Thank you very much for the warm welcome, Katie. It's our pleasure, honestly. Obviously, you've read the novel of Don Quixote, and would you mind answering some of the questions we have for you? Absolutely, that's what I'm here for. Thank you. Okay, so the first question is, what do you know about Miguel de Cervantes' early life which might have inspired him to choose the careers? Um, it's interesting that you say careers in plural. Um, we know actually quite little about Miguel de Cervantes' life. Um, there are no documents uh, that would allow us an insight into his personal life, for example, or his thinking. So there are no handwritten documents that he would have left behind. All we have is a collection of uh, documents that are dispersed across a number of archives and libraries where his name is mentioned. And from that, um, scholars for more than 300, almost 400 years, have tried to piece together um, the little we know about his life. So one of the things we do know is that um, he was enlisted as a soldier in the 1570s, and that, I'm sure as you know as well, that he fought in the naval battle of Lepanto in 1571. That's perhaps one of the most um, relevant, and certainly to Cervantes himself, one of the most important events that he was proud of uh, for the rest of his lifetime because he uh, lost control of his left arm and was severely wounded. And that's uh, where the name Manco de Lepanto comes from, which we can roughly translate as the one-handed man from Lepanto. It's a bit awkward in English, but that's the, 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 the name that's widely used in Spain and in the Spanish-speaking world to refer to Cervantes, the Manco de Lepanto because he left control of his left arm, his left hand. So that's one of the things we know about him. And then um, throughout Cervantes's work, his literary writings, there are certain episodes and allusions to his personal experience, his life experience. And that is really the most interesting source when it comes to trying to reconstruct his, his life. But there is actually very little that we know about him uh, in, in terms of biographical facts. Oh, you asked me about the careers. Well, um, being a soldier at the time was one of, one of the ways of uh, having a career. So the options were actually quite limited in the context of the time, unless you were born into, into riches or had a privileged position at court, it was quite difficult to make a decent living uh, if you compare that to, to our situation in the 21st century. So being um, a, a soldier was one way of making a decent living at the time. And he served with great pride, and even more so, as I've said earlier, even more so after losing or after uh, being wounded on his left arm. So his role in the Battle of Lepanto um, and the subsequent captivity, which <laughs> you may want uh, to explore as well, uh, certainly were a moment of great pride that props up in, in his writings, in his literary writings as well. Thank you. That's very interesting. 
What do you know about his period of captivity that might have influenced his work? Well, similar to the the, the early question, we don't really have much um, independent factual information about uh, his captivity and the experience during his, uh, his captivity. The closest we have really is um, uh, an episode. Well, it's, it's mentioned, it's referred to in several of his writings, but the most explicit reference is perhaps the one in, in an episode in the Don Quixote, uh, or Don Quixote in English, um, where uh, the embedded narrative of the, the captive uh, early on, I think it's towards the end of the first book of the first part of the novel, where the uh, captive talks about his experience in captivity in Algiers. And at some point, he explicitly mentions a certain Saavedra, and as you know, I'm sure, Saavedra is the maternal, so the second surname of Miguel de Cervantes. So it's not often actually included when we refer to the author. We generally refer to him as just Cervantes or Miguel de Cervantes. But Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra is his full name. So the mention of a certain character by the name of Saavedra in the novel Don Quixote itself is a self-referential, ironic quite funny, uh, but also very revealing reference, because it kind of links the captive's experience to uh, Cervantes as the biographical author of the book itself. So that's quite an interesting uh, reference. So we can probably um, make some assumptions about his experience based on, uh, on the captive's tale. So some of that seems to apply, or seems to also apply, to Cervantes' own experience. That's fascinating. What do you think is the most important part of Don Quixote? Um, if by part you mean uh, the distinction between part one and part two, so 1605, the first part, and 1615, the second part, uh, then I would definitely say the second part. For me personally, the second part is even better than the first part. <laughs> I love both parts. But the second part, what I like about the second part is, well, a number of, of reasons why I think the second part is is the better one. Um, one reason is that I find the protagonist is painted in a more human light, in a more psychologically more credible light. He's not quite as stubborn and set in his ways, so it's easier to empathize with him uh, from a psychological point of view. Um, then there are also obviously the the nice conversations he has with his squire Sancho Panza, but those we have in the first part as well, so that's not really so different. Although they are more balanced in the second part, so the relationship between Don Quixote and Sancho Panza changes a little bit over the course of the novel. So in the second part, Sancho Panza is a bit more challenging and daring and doesn't just blindly go along with everything. And that makes for more interesting, uh, more interesting uh, uh, type of conversation. So there's more psychological conflict. So that's more interesting. And the other reason is one that is perhaps more uh, a concern of, of literary scholars is the, the number of uh, literary devices and techniques that Cervantes, use, Cervantes uses in the second part, which at the time were unheard of. Um, one example of that is the, uh, the reference to the first published part in the second part. So in other words, um, uh, Don Quixote, the character, 
comes across other characters, so he meets people who tell him about a novel they read about this crazy, uh, this crazy gentleman called Don Quixote. And although obviously technically it's not the same book, the reference is clearly uh, meant to be a, an ironic self-reference. So it's quite funny, quite a funny play uh, with fiction and uh, between fiction and reality. So the the actual first part obviously had been published in 1605. And then Don Quixote encounters somebody who claims to have read that story and actually comments on the story. So they have very strong views about it. And they say, oh, isn't it funny? It's great. It's very, very, uh, it's very entertaining. And Sancho Panza then also has his, his, his view of things. And he asks how he, Sancho Panza, has been portrayed in that first part of the novel. So it's, it's a hugely interesting play, almost like mirrors, if, if you imagine, like you're looking into a mirror and you see yourself and that's kind of built into the novel. So that's very clever uh, and, and very original at the time as well. Um, let me see. And another example of, of, uh, uh, of what makes the second part so interesting from my point of view is the fact that um, you may or may not know that in 1614, so one year before Cervantes published the second part of his uh, Don Quixote, an apocryphal, that means a falsified and not an authorized version, was published, 1614, by a certain uh, Avianera. Uh, and that second part, which was not authorized by Cervantes at all, uh, but apart from the fact that it's far, far inferior to... <laughs> to the, uh, the, the parts uh, written by Cervantes. What's interesting about this fact is that when Cervantes finds out that this second, this false continuation has been published, he rushes to finish his own second part and inserts into that second part, that's from, I think, from chapter 59 onwards in the second part, he inserts references trying to ridicule and question the authority and the quality of that false second part. So he's trying to debunk it, basically, trying to say, well, this second part, whose author he never names, because that's the best way, the best way of punishing somebody in, in, the ter in, in this context of, of literary competition is to not even mention them. So posterity will never know. It's actually scholars that had to dig up these, uh, these details after the fact. So the book itself does not contain the name of the author of the false second part, but it's very clearly identifiable. And that, again, is a very clever uh, a way, and it shows the playfulness of Cervantes, and it also shows, to some extent, perhaps how, how much he loved his creation, how important it was to him to be in charge and, be, and he alone being in charge of that creation and not have somebody else take it over and take it away from him. That's great. Despite his genius, Cervantes was poor. Why do you think that was? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because um, we, are, we are quite used um, nowadays, not, not, well, for the last decades at least, we're quite used to people being, for, to famous people being also rich people. So we often link r uh, richness uh, or, or, or yeah, a lot of money to fame and the other way around. And in, in many cases, that is true. At the time of Cervantes, that wasn't automatically the case. So being a writer at the time was not generally a way of making a good living. Writing was always something that, well, for most people, that they did on the side. 
So most famous writers at the time had what we would now call a day job, meaning they had a position at court or in the administration somewhere that was more or less well paid. Uh, but very few could actually directly live on on uh, on their writing, if any at all. And Cervantes was in a situation where he didn't have any such privileged uh, uh, position at the court or in the administration, so he always, throughout his lifetime, struggled. And ironically, some people say that because he struggled so much in his life, he was able to write such a magnificent book and other books as well. But his suffering actually were a motor or his experience of of uh, different uh, uh, types of situation and economic uh, challenges and other challenges in life enabled him to produce such a rich work of literature. So he was not a spoiled um, court employee or whatever. He actually, um, you could say, he wrote despite the hardness and the, the, the hardships of his life. Um, and, and that enabled him to produce such a magnificent work. And one, one um, interesting detail in that context is the, the so-called approbacion in the second part. So the approbacion is, is the document that uh, is put at the beginning of a text that certifies that the text has been officially approved for publication by the Crown. So it has basically passed censorship, if you will. So in this approbation in the second part, um, there is a, that's not written by Cervantes himself, by the way, that's text written by somebody else. Um, there is an episode where a Frenchman um, mentions or comments on Don Quixote, the novel, as a fantastic and, and marvelous piece of, of uh, literary writing and says that in his country, in France, somebody capable of writing such a brilliant novel would be rich. So that perhaps shows a bit the difference as well between France and Spain at the time. It's an interesting episode. If you haven't uh, come across it yet, it's, it's well worth uh, looking up at the beginning of the second part. That is a great idea. Thank you. I know Don Quixote is the first modern novel, but why is it the first modern novel? Yeah, that's, wow. That's the $1,000 question, <laughs> which is very difficult to answer in a couple of sentences. Yes, most people uh, uh, agree, it, it's almost uh, encycl encyclopedic knowledge, general knowledge, that Don Quixote is the first modern novel. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree. It's, it's for, for a number of reasons. I'll, I'll try to reduce it to perhaps just, um, just two things here. Uh, one is that the characters in Don Quixote are unusually complex in terms of their psychological inner lives, which is something that at the time was, was very, very rare or practically inexistent. So most characters were quite simple. They had very simple motives. They were driven by very predictable patterns of behavior. Whereas in, in Don Quixote, it's all about the psychological, the inner struggles that uh, that drive the plot forward, and that that is unique at the time, and that is exactly what we find in in uh, more recent novels or novels since uh, the Don Quixote. And the second thing is perhaps uh, equally important. I would say that the range of characters, unlike in earlier writing, the range of characters um, represent 
very different outlooks on life. So you have people um, that are part of the nobility and their, their perspective is presented in the novel. And then you have peasants. You have someone like Sancho Panza who has a very uh, kind of simplistic, uh, but at the same time, quite streetwise outlook on life. And then you have Don Quixote, the, the, the nobleman uh, who is impoverished uh, and uh, is full of ideals and great ideas and uh, can't really distinguish very well between fiction and reality. And each one of these different characters, and there are many, many more, there, there are literally dozens. Uh, I have never counted them, but I'm sure somebody has counted the number of characters. If you look at them, Together, you find a huge range of different positions being represented, different views on life and on issues. So you have discussions about literature where different characters have very different views and they all kind of make sense from their perspective. And that is also something unprecedented at the time, this complexity and this wide range of, of uh, outlooks on life being represented in a single text. That's remarkable and still is remarkable. Thank you. What makes Don Quixote a universal classic? Yeah, that's um, it's a similarly complicated question to the previous one. What makes him the first modern novel? What makes him a universal classic? Um, the simple answer, which is is not a very good answer um, because it's circular, would be would be because people more than four hundred years after still read it. That's what makes it a universal classic. But I know that's not a real answer. Having said that, um, it's very difficult or perhaps impossible to pinpoint exactly what makes a book a universal classic. And that's because the, the label classic is normally attached to or assigned to a book or work of art long after it was produced. It's always done retrospectively. So classics are never classics at the time they are written or produced. That's quite interesting. So classics is something that emerges over time. Uh, and many people have attempted to predict, you know, which latest novel will be a classic. And they're generally wrong because it's very, very, very difficult to predict what will actually um, last in time and, and, and survive over over time. But I, nonetheless, I'll, I'll try and... Um, uh, pinpoint perhaps a few elements that might have contributed to Don Quixote becoming such a famous and universal classic. Um, so one of them, one of these aspects, I think, is that um, the novel touches upon universal issues. For example, we all know the experience, we all share the experience that the world isn't exactly how we wish it to be. Yeah, that's that's a universal experience. And of course, Don Quixote has a very specific take on that. But the principle, I think, is one that we all that we are all familiar with, or that um, our love, our that we love a person and that love isn't uh, reciprocated, that they don't love us back. They don't like us back, even with friends, it doesn't have to be love doesn't have to be love. That's also an experience that probably everybody at some point in their life will 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 have made. And and these things are in that's in that sense universal. And they're very much at the center of uh, of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza's uh, adventures. And there are many more examples I could give, but that's one thing obviously. The experiences 
are universal in that sense, or they have a universal dimension, perhaps. And another reason, perhaps, is that often Don Quixote is insanely funny. I find it hilarious. It's not always easy to detect the the humor. Um, some of it is quite um, a kind of slapstick humor, we could say, perhaps a bit like Charlie Chaplin type of humor, if we want to uh, compare it to film, you know, where people just um, slip on a banana skin and, and hurt themselves so that everybody finds it funny. There, there is that kind of, of humor in Don Quixote, which... Um, Historically, people would have found very funny, apparently. There's good evidence of that. And we today don't necessarily find that funny anymore. But then there are other types of humor that are very, very witty. It's uh, the play on words. It's the use of language. It's the um, discussions, the many discussions between Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. So um, this this funniness or this uh, comi comicity or comicality of Don Quixote, just as a footnote, an added footnote, is is not something that has always been appreciated. So the early readers in the 1600s, they generally considered Don Quixote first and foremost to be a very funny book. Then over time, that perception shifted a little bit. And for the romantics around 1800, so we're talking about 200 years later, that they actually, they read Don Quixote as a tragic book, as a tragic hero, as somebody who fails with his ideals in a, in a, uh, inhospitable and, uh, um, uh, um, and, and alien uh, world. So that was a very different take. And that's partly to do with the fact that for certain periods in history, funny books were always considered to be inferior to serious books. So if it's funny, it can't be good. And there still is a little bit of that prejudice nowadays. If you, if you look at bestseller lists or even films, you know, comedies are funny and they are appreciated, but the really serious stuff is generally considered to be, you know, dramatic films, for example, or novels. So there's, there's an echo of that kind of prejudice. Um, and that's, uh, sorry, I, I'm getting a bit sidetracked here. So um, why is it a universal classic? Well, because it has it touches upon universal issues, but also because it's very, very funny and a good part of the humor, I think, is universal as well. So it's not specific to Spain. It's not specific to the historical period in which it is set. It's also universal. Thank you. That's very interesting. During the story, a windmill fight happened. So what's your interpretation of that? <laughs> yeah, that's one of the most famous episodes, isn't it? It's the one that everybody knows immediately. So if you ask somebody, even people who haven't read the novel, what do you associate? What do you think of when I say Don Quixote or Don Quixote? Most people would probably say, oh, isn't that the guy who is uh, tilting against windmills? And of course, they're right. Yeah. So it's it's a very famous episode and for good reason. One reason perhaps is because it's a relatively early episode in the first part. I think it's chapter chapter eight of the first part. So it, in a way, it, it establishes the character early on in the novel. So it's, it's in that sense, it's paradigmatic. So it establishes a model, a paradigm. Um, because it kind of uh, makes us realize and understand the kind of madness uh, that uh, Don Quixote uh, suffers from, or if we want to use a bit more uh, cautious terminology, the, the distorted view 
and this difficulty of distinguishing between fiction and reality is uh, established in a particularly strong way in that in that episode and why is that so strong i think it's partly because it's a very visual a very physical visual impressive image imagining somebody in a suit of armor uh, fighting against you know the wing of a windmill is quite uh, is quite a strong image and uh, i think that's also the reason why uh, virtually all adaptations of Don Quixote, of which I've uh, watched probably upwards of 30 or 40 film adaptations and also comic adaptations, they all include this episode. Not a single one of them um, glosses over that one. They, they omit all kinds of things and they all shorten the novel dramatically. But this episode is always at the center because it's so visual, it's so physical, and it's so impressive. I think that's... Oh, and yes, uh, in terms of what it what it means, my interpretation, uh, indirectly I've already said that, I think it, it stands for, it illustrates um, very cogently how uh, Don Quixote misunderstands or misreads reality around him because, and that takes us back to the very beginning of the novel, because so Cervantes... He has read too many uh, romances of chivalry. Yeah, that's that's the genre that he, uh, as you know, that he uh, has consumed excessively, and those novels function in a very very different way from the novel Don Quixote itself. So it's kind of the anti-romance chivalry. Yeah, it's it, they really don't go together very well. Thank you. What's the message that Cervantes wanted to convey about reality and fantasy or madness and sanity? Yeah, that's a tricky one. Um, I think one, one thing that he achieves in the novel, regardless of, of whether or not he wanted to achieve it, because that's, it's difficult to second guess authors' intentions unless we have, you know, we have, we can interview them most directly. All we have really is the text. So what we, what we should really use and, and look at and focus on is what the text tells us. And I believe that in this regard, one of the things that the novel achieves in that sense is to humanize madness. It's very easy, almost inevitable for us to to sympathize or empathize with the character. So um, he is mad in a way, but he's also one of us. And we are in some ways like him. So it's not as easy as saying these are the mad and these are the sane people. You know, the the boundary between madness and sanity is a very blurry one. And uh, I mean, that's certainly uh, in line with uh, 21st century view of, of mental illness as well, that, that it's a spectrum, uh, just as uh, many diseases or, or mental illnesses are, are a spectrum. It's not really easy to say where each of us falls onto that spectrum. And in some way or other, probably all of us have had moments of madness and fall onto that spectrum. And I think that's one achievement of Cervantes, that he humanizes madness and takes it out of the, out of the context um, and the traditional idea of mad people live in a madhouse. Yeah, they need to be... Um, locked up and locked away, which at the time was very much uh, the reality. So people who were considered mad, uh, they were they were kept away, they were locked away. 
and uh, Don Quixote himself at some point um, is locked away, just as Cervantes was locked away in his captivity. So there are lots of echoes and repetitions and elements that we find in his life, in his novel, and, and in wider society. That's a good thing to keep in mind. And now for our final question is, in which other authors slash works can we find the influence of Cervantes? Um, okay, let me uh, let me cheekily answer that with a question: in what in what novel don't don't find we the influence of Cervantes? I know that's a bit of a cheap answer. I'll, I'll, I'll offer a little more than that. So pretty much anywhere in novels where we have carrot struggling against adversity. Uh, and and we are invited to to uh, sympathize with those characters yeah so and that is any serious novel that engages with human conflict and human adversity and ideals uh, the difference between or the conflict or contrast between what we want and what we actually can achieve Wherever we find that, we have a remote echo of uh, Don Quixote. Thank you so much for coming on to the show and answering our questions. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for asking these questions, Kate. No problem. Thank you.